This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith who are organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. Welcome back, everyone. This is Heart of a Heartless World. I'm Ralph, and I'm here today with Dr. Woodland Serafin, who is Assistant Professor of Literacy Studies at the University of Texas at Arlington. And today we're going to have uh, an incredible conversation about decolonizing curriculum and Haitian spirituality. So welcome, Woodland. It's great to see you again. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the invite. All right. Um, eventually, we are going to dive into some of your work. But to start, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, Who is Dr. Woodland Serafin? That's a question whose answer changes by the day, by the year, by the decade. Uh, Yep. So at this moment, I would describe myself as a Black Haitian American scholar and educator and born and raised in the county of Dade, Miami, Florida. And um, A big part of who I am is who my family has been to me, who my mother was. She passed away. And so it's a big part of how I'm thinking about myself now in adulthood um, in this journey without my mom. Um, And I am dedicated and passionate about children feeling safe and smart and heard and affirmed at school. And that is largely due to my experiences of feeling the opposite of those things um, at schools and experiencing that as an educator and seeing that play out on the other end of that. So a lot of the work that I do now is to ensure that children are free and they ex- they are free to do the things that they can do in, in, in classroom spaces. It's really, really beautiful. What What is your uh, education background in terms of How have you been a teacher? Where have you been a student? All those sorts of things. So I did all of my K-12 schooling in Miami-Dade County Public Schools, uh, K-12, and then went off to college because, you know, I wanted to be a business major. I wanted to make money. And sophomore year, I'm just like, I hate this so much. I hate this so much. And I, I, I transferred into education. And so I got, um, my degree from Rollins in English and teacher certification went off for more school to get a degree, a a master's in black studies from Indiana university. Cause I'm like, I need more. I don't know enough. And then worked with third and no fourth and fifth graders, um, in, in Miami day. I went back to the, to my district to teach. Yeah. And that was really special. And then I remember just having the, not a really great time as a teacher because it felt like all the things that I had learned, especially the things that I pulled from black studies were illegible in, in the classroom Mm. space. We were deep in testing mode at that time. The FCAT was a state assessment. And so the students were tested the first day of school, the first week of school, we're doing baseline assessments. Right. And every few weeks were, I'm I'm like sweating. It was intense. (laughs) It was intense. It wasn't fun for me. They were miserable. And 
I think what I pulled from that experience is that this can't be the curriculum. There's, there's this curriculum doesn't even recognize, doesn't even know how to compute all the ways that these students express literacies, all the ways that they express um, knowledge and walk through the world. And I had mostly black and brown students and we were testing the dog snot out of them and it didn't matter. And it was, it wasn't a liberating experience. So I decided I need to go back to school and get some letters behind my name because unfortunately that's what it takes sometimes for people to listen and engage your ideas about what schooling can look like. And so I did my training at Penn State, got my PhD in curriculum and instruction and was a whole world opened up um, in terms of learning about black scholars, feminist scholars who've been talking about schooling from this emancipatory um, orientation for generations, right? And I'm just like, why isn't this? Why isn't this in schools? Why aren't we learning how to do this kind of work? Um, so that's what drives me today. This season uh, on the podcast, we're going to start um, asking this new question that kind of helps the listeners to understand your context a bit better. Um, and it stems from our podcast name, Heart of Heartless World which comes from this famous phrase from Marx about religion that gets quoted all the time. Um, And the phrase is this, religion is the opium of the people. It is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. So the question is, how have you experienced religion um, as an opiate, something that suppresses liberative activity, or as the heart and soul of a suffering world that energizes collective action and solidarity? Yeah, I had to really sit with this question. And I think the moment religion became a thing that I didn't recognize anymore was really early, unfortunately. Um, So grew up in a Haitian community in Miami and church was like a central um, place in maintaining relationships, being in community with others and culture and language. That's where I got like my Haitian fix was being in church. I had extended uncles and aunts and cousins. We weren't related, (laughs) right? But these are people that I grew up with. And I remember um, just loving to go to church and and, and not for like getting the word, right? I'm like, (laughs) I'm in third grade or whatever. It's not, that's not the fun. It's like hanging out with friends seeing, um, you know, getting sweets from the church ladies and that kind of stuff. And there was a moment when the woman who had founded our church, she passed away. And there was Mm. a struggle between like, who is going to now be like the lead pastor of the church. And it all came to head one Sunday morning. Um, We came, we got there. We sometimes would get there late because it was my mom getting five people ready, for five kids ready for church. So we were off the late. She did her best. And I remember we, we were getting, walking towards the building and there's people in the parking lot and they're shouting and there's yelling. Oh my word. And at one point they're shoving and it got so bad that the police were called and to, to deescalate the situation. And at one point I remember an officer walking up to me because I was, I was bawling. It was such a, it was so jarring to see as a kid, like seeing my family fight. And he walked up to me, he's like, are you okay? Did something happen to you? And I remember saying, no, everyone is fighting. And that was, Hmm. 
a break for me. I still get emotional thinking about it. Um, yeah. Just because in that moment, church wasn't about family. It wasn't about community. It wasn't about um, worshiping and praising together. It was about power. It was about, mm. you know, men in that in that particular <laughs> context, like that dynamic vying for power. And it it mm. that power struggle broke the church. It split in two and was never mm. the same again. So half of the church left. Mm. So I didn't get to, you know, do my teenage years with those folks. I see them on social media, but it was such a great loss. And it was a loss that mm. made me think, well, I don't think y'all believe the things y'all are telling us to to live by. And I don't think I've ever recovered from that um, just because it was such a such a traumatic moment. When we when we met, well, I guess I don't know if we even met. I think maybe I introduced myself, but um, I was introduced to your work at a curriculum and pedagogy conference last year. And you were um, presenting some of your research that you had published. And I don't know if it was directly from the, the article Diasporic Dreaming. Was it from? It wasn't was it a piece of new. It was, it was new, new work. work. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, gotcha. Um, but anyway, I what really piqued my interest uh, was the side comment that you made, uh, where you mentioned the importance of attending to the religious identities um, and the spiritual literacies of uh, these Haitian girls yes. as uh, an essential part of practicing decolonizing pedagogy. Yes. And I was like, oh, whoa, yeah, say more about that. Um, and then you didn't. So uh, here we are. Um, and uh, I'm going to ask you to say more about that. Absolutely. First of all, could you just describe your work um, and how your how your research with Haitian transnational girls in Miami came to be, what brought about the research and, and then how do you, how do you connect with it personally? Yeah. So a big part of it was that I needed to make sense of my own schooling experiences as, you know, a dark skinned Haitian girl growing up in Miami, which is its own little cosmopolitan city of the, the, the Caribbean, the African diaspora, Latin America. It's a lot happening in those spaces. But one thing uh, that remains consistent is anti-Blackness, right? And so hmm. it took me really up until grad school to be able to name those experiences and to name like why was it the only time that I encountered Haiti in any formal academic space? It's been through the lens of poverty. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the famous tagline for Haiti is that it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but we never interrogate why. We never interrogate um, its colonial past and how the United States and France and the, the world is implicated in that, the IMF, all those things. We don't talk about that, mm-hmm. but we really, really settle on it being this place of abject poverty, corruption, natural disaster. Um, and so I came across uh, these educators who had created this program maybe my second or third year of grad school. It's in, it was a literacy program for the summer. And a friend was like, you pro- you would probably love teaching here. And when I read their curriculum, I'm just like, I needed this, not teach. I yeah. needed this as a middle schooler. Yeah. And what they had built, um, Dr. Desir and Dr. Hall, they built a program specifically for Haitian children in a way in which that, all of these identities was considered a literacy. So having spiritual literacy, 
bringing in culture and language, Haitian culture and language, was part of how we read, wrote, spoke, did arts in the space. They learned about the Middle Passage. They learned about Haiti's colonial history from the standpoint of those who were enslaved and, and emancipated themselves rather than um, Haiti being a stop on, you know, the trades and yeah. sugar and tobacco. Like, it wasn't talked about that way. We learned about our ancestors and how they fought for their freedom. Narratives, that again, that I did not encounter until post-secondary experiences. And so I, I wanted to sit with what was happening there. Like, I'm like, this is special. This is different. I've, I am blown away by what the freedoms I had as an educator to work with students. I'm blown away by the students and their brilliance and what they do, how they, how they make sense of so many different things. Um, and then also the spiritual component that I had never encountered as an educator. Actually, my first, I was with this program for three years. My first year was, I was so uncomfortable every week because it was just like, all right, we're talking voodoo. We are talking about this spiritual component. This is our theme. And I'm just like, oh my God. And we're praying and we're meditating. And I'm just like, oh my God, is this, this is not, this is not okay. We're, we're forcing ourselves. We're forcing religion and we shouldn't do that. That's not how, that's not what we do in classes. But it just opened up another avenue that I argue is as equally intellectually rigorous and important for mm-hmm. students when they're meaning making and evolving and developing their identities wow. is to develop that spiritual piece. Who are they? Who are they in this universe? Yeah. Who are they connecting to both in the past? What mm-hmm. energies do they use to constitute visions for the future? So it was just, and they were doing this as middle schoolers, you know what I mean? And so I, I really, I had a class of mostly girls, um, maybe 27 students, five five young boys and mostly girls or students who identified as girls. And so I'm just like, well, they're the core. Um, and I don't think we talk about, one, we don't talk about girls enough, Black girls enough, let alone Black girls who are from the global South. And so that was a, a, a long, <laughs> long-winded answer to say, like, I was fascinated by all that they could do and all that they did in that program, and I wanted to understand it more. And this program was called was called Help. Is that right? H mm-hmm. E L P. Mm-hmm. And did, what did that stand for? The Haitian Empowerment Literacy Project. You use this phrase when you are um, describing Haitian transnational girls. The um, and this is in in the title of of the article. And this is the one that I'm familiar with that I read, um, which was called Diasporic Dreaming: The Extraordinary Literacies and Superpowers of Haitian and Haitian American Girls. Um, so the phrase in there, the superpower of diasporic dreaming, um, really fascinating to me. So first of all, the word diaspora is it's spelled different. And do you pronounce it differently mm-hmm. as well? Okay. Could you explain that? <laughs> so within <laughs> Haitian culture, a diaspora is a Haitian who's left and is living outside of Haiti. And depending on where you are and who you're talking to, it takes on very different meanings. So the literal hmm. non-political meaning is that it's just a, 
a Haitian who's uh, emigrated from Haiti and is living either in the United States, Europe, or um, Canada. But it has implications because sometimes folks who are considered diaspora are positioned as privileged, and to some extent they are. And they often um, take on like a paternalistic uh, mm. approach to the island, like because I've left and I've accumulated the things and I'm, you know, grounded I'm in other... go back po- and fix yes, all the problems. Yes, yes, So there's often yeah. tension between um, mm. folks who are on the island and the diaspora who leave and try to come back um, or try to establish themselves back on the island because they've accumulated, you know, capital, wealth, and can can make real moves in Haiti. And so there's a lot of tension in that term. But it's complex. It is complex. Again, depending on how it's used, it, it's a real critique of um, the diaspora um, and how they take on some of the, the, the global discourses of, of Haiti and the ways that folks who are who remain on the island resist it resist that kind of uh, paternalism. And so diasporic dreaming is their ability to look forward, look back in multiple places and meaning make and build relationships and connect and think about their futures. And I'm calling that a superpower because mm-hmm. in that uh, out-of-school literacy program, they're, they're writing about who they came from, where they came from, what they came from. They're describing what their future will look like, their goals, what they what they what they want their lives to be. They're accessing Haitian history to like build identity that is not couched in these discourses of poverty, these discourses of um, victimhood, and uh, that are infantilizing to the Haitian people. Um, they're resisting those things and taking on like, you know, our forefathers and foremothers freed themselves. The only black Republic to successfully uh, enact a slave revolt, you know, that they're using those narratives to define who they are. I mean, it's really incredible. The, the age that we're talking about here is, is young, right? Like this, this is the sort of, uh, you know, when we talk about meaning making and, that that gets put off till you know a philosophy class in college <laughs> or uh you know a midlife crisis <laughs> um, and you're engaging this actively at such a young age um that that does feel like a superpower and the reason we have to do it so early is because anti-blackness racialized violence hmm. neo neo-colonialism is deadly hmm. and so we can't wait for students to self-define themselves and to be self-determined. The program directors have told the the students, if you don't know who you are, someone else will. Someone else will tell you who you are. You have three conceptual frameworks in your research. Haitian voodoo, um, diasporic laku, and black feminist literacies. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch on each of those. Um, So let's start with voodoo. Um, and its role in the socio-spiritual formation of African culture on Hispaniola? So that's a big question. But Vodou is is resistance. It's an African cosmology. 
that is rooted in nurturing relationships, relationships with your ancestors from the past, relationships with those who you haven't even yet have yet met, relationships with the natural world, with the spiritual world, and maintaining healthy balance and harmony in those relationships. Um, and what's happened is that once we have, you know, missionaries and colonizers come to the island, Christianity is is seen as the civilizing vehicle um, for for those for enslaved Africans. And it is demonized, right? Voodoo is often portrayed in the media as a sort of black magic, black arts, uh, pushing pins into dolls so that you can cause harm to the person. Um, And it's really been stripped of the sort of the beauty that it brings and how it really um, forces us to think about how we are promoting harmony and maintaining harmony in the world around us. And one thing that is so powerful about it is that it's not typically centralized in a place of worship, like a cathedral or anything like that, right? People are practicing um, their spirituality in different places. There might be gathering, you know, places to gather and to worship and to connect with your spirit, the the spirit world, Um, but it's not organized how we understand organized religion in the Western world. And so everyday encounters, everyday interactions, everyday practices are moments for you to tap into your spirituality and to tap into um, what the world is telling you, um, how the world is guiding you to to heal and to, again, promote peace and harmony and knowledge. Um, and so it's, a, it's an anti-colonial, decolonial act to center those sorts of spiritual spiritual understandings in a classroom that's in the U.S., right? And the other thing is that Christianity and voodoo are very, they're intermingled, right? They're aspects, they're so intermingled that they're aspects in Haitian churches that come from voodoo and vice versa. So yeah. it's, it's, it's not an effort to strip one or the other or to foreground one while back, you know, backgrounding the other it's like hey this is also part of who we are this is also part of how we kind of navigate and make sense of the people around us and how we take care of each other and so yeah that, that's a radical for me to see that work with kids <laughs> The, the second framework is the Haitian Laku, its function in Haitian life and its role in facilitating Haitian knowledge um, in, yeah. in learning and even in social health. So could you define the Laku? What is it? And mm-hmm. how this is what I, I found really fascinating was to me, it felt like a critique of Western approaches to learning, to assessment, to health um, and even to religion. So could you help us understand the Haitian Laku? So Haitian culture is understood to be very collective. Um, Relationships and community is paramount. And so gathering spaces are also very important. And the physical laku is like a yard. And if you look at how certain neighborhoods were built, you have multiple houses, but one big shared yard. 
And so that's how you Mm. see your neighbor. That's how you share resources. You share meals. This is where you celebrate. And so, you know, in the U.S., it's like, we want space from our neighbors. We build big fences and, you know, get lots of land. Yeah, so that we are cut off and people can't come in um, into those spaces. Mm. And the opposite is true, where we are all sharing this Mm. big, open plot of space of land and in the in those spaces we do a lot of things with each other for each other um and so that's that's like the physical place of the physical aspect of the laku but then people also use the laku to talk to their ancestors and to mm-hmm. do that kind of spiritual work and again the the physical space the spiritual space they're connected and so in thinking about the laku in a classroom space, we are all working together to understand our humanities. And we are all in, in doing that, we can't separate the spiritual component because that's part of who we are. That's how we gather. That's how we understand each other. That's what we value. And so that's very uh, and to and what's the word? It's very contradictory to how we do formal schooling in the U.S., right? The body and the spirit are separate. Both aren't activated when we're we're learning about different things, different places, different people. It's a very in objective, quote-unquote. Yes, it's very objective and um, devoid from, you know, emotional, spiritual understandings of people, places, and things. And so those two are very, very different in their approaches, of, of what happens in a classroom space, which I also will argue is anti-colonial. Because where do you learn about your spirit? Where do you learn about your ancestors? Um, in my public schooling in the U.S., uh, I wasn't asked to imagine who they were and what they wanted for me. I wasn't asked to like to connect to those energies and those histories. Um, I mean, we would do family trees, right? But that that's the extent of it. But not really understanding it. Like, when they existed, they had a vision of you. What did they imagine you to be based on their experiences with uh, chattel slavery, right? That's a very different conversation around how you can walk in the world as a free person, knowing that someone imagined a better future for you. Um, mm, wow. And again, it reframes... Haiti, it reframes uh, people who were enslaved by France outside of the discourses of, again, corruption, uh, lack of organization, poverty, chaos. And so that's where that anti-colonial work comes in, where we are reconnecting to those cosmologies and reframing our ancestors and helping that reframing of who our ancestors were and where we come from, helping us to define, self-define who we are in this particular moment. What legacy are we leaving behind for the future? The third concept that you use in your research has to do with Black feminist literacies. So could you describe uh, what does that mean and what does that look like? Could you <laughs> could you also add in there um, just a conversation about intersectionality? So many forces have shaped Black feminist literacies. Um, and, mm-hmm. and how does how does that all fit together? Right. 
the problem of schools and what they do to black girls in general. Mm -hmm. So black girls, mm -hmm. because of their intersections of race and gender, are often seen as violent, are over-policed, their bodies, their hair. Um, the way they communicate is sometimes read as aggressive or they never see themselves um, in the works of art, the things that are beautiful, the literature that we read, there's erasure. Um, there is also silence around their intellectual contributions to a space. And so Black girl literacies is a concept that disrupts all of that, that says, actually, we're going to start from a place that Black girls are brilliant, they are worthy, they offer so much to a classroom space. They experience racism, they experience sexism, and we need to contend with that. However, that's not the only, that's not, that's not who they are, are these oppressions they actually communicate a lot of things about their worlds. We just need to know how to, to listen and understand those practices. So when a black girl talks about her hair, what is she really communicating? When she talks about um, her family life and having to take on all these different responsibilities, what is she communicating? If she's understanding a text as um, like the bluest eye and Morrison, if she's connecting to that story, what is she communicating to her classmates? And so this is a framework that allows us to see things that we don't consider as literacy as literacy. Their storytelling, speaking in their mother tongue, not code switching, um, bringing in aspects of Black culture, Black womanhood, Black girlhood, um, and them having a space to express all of those experiences. Um, that's what, to the core of it, that's what um, Black, Black Girl Literacies does, is that it allows us to be able to see Black girls and to see the real work that they're doing in classrooms and to also fight against um, racialized and gendered oppression in the curriculum and in our interactions with them. In your, in your research, you used... Um, and analyzed from your students and, and writings and multimedia um, presentations and all, all sorts of things. Is there one or two in particular that stands out as, as meaningful to you, mm. as something that stuck with you? How many examples do you <laughs> So there was one creative project that the students did was to um, make a movie, make a film, and the, the driving piece of the film is when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And I remember one girl, she, she said, when I look in the mirror, I see a really short girl with two ponytails, but I also see someone who's going to become a doctor. I see someone who is beautiful, who, and she's saying this all in Creole. She's speaking in Haitian Creole hmm. and she's just describing like, I mean, you know, you look in the mirror, but she's not describing like the physical mirror. She's describing the visions of herself that she's going to accomplish. Yeah. And I just remember being blown away by that because I don't think I could have done that at 12. I would have been like, oh, I see, you know, nappy hair. I see a big nose. <laughs> I see dark skin. You know, I had a gap at the time. I see a gap tooth. you know, like, because... 
<laughs> that's that's, that's what I. That's so, such a. Oh my god, right? It's a, but she didn't engage in that, like right. She described her ponytails, which was adorable because she's she's adorable. But then <laughs> she talked about herself as so much more than what was in the mirror. Yeah. Another piece or uh, a journal prompt that really that kind of haunts me, and it it, it helps mm-hmm. illustrates why the program was so important. Um, it was a it was a student, a young girl. She'd been in the program at this point for two summers. And so she's answering that perennial question, who am I? And she started off saying, last year, I stood on the stage saying who I was. I was confident. I was I felt good about myself. And then I went back to school and was shattered. And so this hmm. this summer, I come back to the program to pick up the broken pieces of who I am. And I'm just like, what? Oh my God. You know what I mean? Cause in there she's, she's talking about all the work that you have to do to, to stand up in class, in school. And then all the things that you encounter either from your classmates, from your teachers, from your principals, from whatever, uh, school police officer, all the things that literally try to break you. And mm. so that was like the, the, the tragic part of that, that piece. But then she continues to write. So this is who I am. I am a scholar. I am a Haitian American. And she re like, she it's almost as though she's reminding herself of all the things that she really reconstructing is. Despite, her, yes. Her pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just like, I'm so I'm I it made me really proud to be a part of a program like that where she had the space to do that where she had the space to again like reconstitute herself in a system that is constantly trying to pull her apart. My last question is really the the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is the initial side comment that you made, it hinted at this idea that spiritual knowledge is an essential literacy for empowerment and for maybe just generally kind of liberative education. Um, And specifically for you, that was with these Haitian transnational girls. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what is the result of leaving religion and spirituality out of the struggle for liberation, for decolonization, for humanization such a such a big question an important question um what i've learned from this experience and from this work is that we need to understand what liberation means for ourselves we need to understand what it means to be at peace with who you are the total and who you are in your totality right um we need guidance from people who have lived these horrific things and how how they still had full lives, how they still experienced joy. And I think what Vodou helps us to do is to tap into that, where we are coming into our own, having peace with ourselves, having healthy relationships, but also learning all the ways that our ancestors created a world for themselves where they, they did the unthinkable. That's actually 
uh, a historical text about the Haitian Revolution. Like, it's literally unthinkable at that point in time that enslaved mm. people could free themselves. And so there's a lot to learn mm. from that, and there's a lot to apply mm. to our context today. But if we leave that kind of work out, if we leave that kind of interrogation out, I don't know what kind of world we're envisioning and what kind of world we're fighting for mm. if we don't know how to maintain and create those connections to one another. If we don't know what healthy relationships look like, if we don't know what community looks like, what are we fighting for? And mm. and I think in this context, our spiritual knowledge is help define those and make those clearer. And it at least makes us more inquiring on what that could look like, what that could be. It's very well answered. Thank you for that. Um, any any final thoughts you'd like to share? Is there something you feel like we missed that's kind of central to this topic and conversation? Um, I think that Haiti has a lot to offer the world. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and that our existence as Haitians is not around some of these really, like I said, infantilizing ideas about who we are as a people and that we, in our own right, are human and are full of, I don't know, I'm not saying this right, but I don't want our humanity to get lost in the compounding crises that are, that are happening right now. Haiti is mm -hmm. more than its crises. Where, where can people find your work? Um, but then also if people are interested in th these ideas, this topic, where would you send them? Are there books and research and um, <gasps> schools of thought? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> where do you, where do you send people? So for my work, a quick Google scholar search Woodland Seraphin, these articles <laughs> will come up. Um, you can also follow me at on Twitter at Dr. D-R-W Serafin, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N. If you want to learn more about voodoo, um, I recommend reading the scholarship of Patrick Belgar-Smith and Claude, uh, uh, Claudine Michelle. Also, Haitian feminist work, Regina Jean Charles. She does amazing work around... Um, the visibility or invisibility of black Haitian girls, Gina Ulysses, who wrote the book on Haiti needing new narratives. Um, if you want to know more about sort of how the West is complicit in the current crises in Haiti, Mark Schiller, um, Schuler's work at a NIU. So those are some of the heavy hitters in Haitian studies. If you look those folks up, you'll those are good places to start. Thank you so much, Lillian. It's been great talking with you. This has been a really helpful conversation for me. I feel joy. I feel um, I, I feel uh, hope for just those girls and their stories and the ways that they um, interacted with themselves and with each other. Yes. That's hopeful to me. Yes. The kids are all right. <laughs> the kids are all right. It's good. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World. 
Get connected and learn more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, religioussocialism.org. <laughs> I don't know if that helps you, but... <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. Uh, I'm just trying not to embarrass myself.